Hello, hello, everyone. Hello, my dear audience. Hello, my friends. I'm Peter Resnick, and welcome to the Dr. Peter Resnick's Toolbox. So, um, last week, I asked you, ladies and gentlemen, to send me an email and if, uh, tell me if you were interested in me doing here on this show the same five-day program keeping sanity in the world that went crazy that I conducted at Gary Knoll's retreat. Unfortunately, I did not get much enthusiasm in response. Uh, only a couple of people wrote asking me to do it. So I guess either people were not interested or they thought that somebody else would write. Anyway, for now, I will not be talking about the crazy world and how to deal with it. But if you are interested in sending me an email, um, you're welcome to, uh, to request, again, this program or any other program. If you want to write, you write to Peter1818, R-E-Z-N as Nancy, I-K, at gmail.com. Also, if you want to call today, with the question or comment, the number here to call is 888-874-4888. If you have a problem listening to us through the internet because of the poor internet connection, you can use the listen live by phone number, and that is 641-793. 7091. So um, let's do a little show and tell. So before show and tell, I wanted to say I also received an email from someone requesting that I do a program once I mention it on the air, uh, Healing and Prevention of Cancer, Mind-Body Integrative Approach. Uh, I will do it at one point, particularly if more people request that I do this program. The show and tell. I came across uh, on internet these words written by Maya Angelou, who was an American poet, dancer, civil rights activist, a scholar, and a world-famous author. Here is what she wrote. I have learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. But people will never forget how you made them feel. Somehow these words touched me. Uh, It's so true. People will never forget how you made them feel. Let us always remember when we meet people, When they walk away, we must ask ourselves a question. How will they feel as a result of this interaction? How what we said, no, no, not what we said according to Maya Angelou, not even what we said, but the way we said what we said, the way we treated them will have an impact on them, will leave a good feeling, or a little scar 
I personally met so many people uh, just because I've been working with people for 45 years, and I also am a person beyond work. I met clients, but I met people in social situations, people I spend an hour with or a day with or many days. And it's so true. I don't remember what most people I met, I spent time with. I don't remember what we were speaking about, but I definitely remember the feeling I had about our encounter. And yes, I, I met many, uh, quite a few oh, people of great talent, of big accomplishments, like oh, psychic healers. I met, for example, Zev Coleman, a psychic healer. Maybe some of you heard about him. Uh, my colleague from the Shakta Center for Complementary Medicine, where I worked, my colleague, um, Martin Wallace was a friend of Zev Coleman. And he brought me one time to Coleman's office, which was on, I remember, on 57th Street. That was some 25 years ago. I don't remember what we were talking about. I just remember that we shook hands. His palms were very hot, super hot. And he was very casual, very welcoming. And I left the meeting feeling good, a feeling kind of inspired and uh, amazed by, by the power of this person, but by the power of the presence. Um, maybe because he gave me his attention, even though he knew nothing about me. Uh, but later, when I told a friend, about visiting Zev Coleman, he told me that once he went to Coleman for a healing session and that he had on him a cell phone which was almost empty. But when he walked out of Coleman's office after the session, his phone was completely charged. I met another uh, psychic. I don't know why psychics now are coming to my mind, but they are remarkable people. That was Beatrice Rich. I just learned that she died in April, this April, at the age of 84. I met her in early 90s. She was a friend of a woman, Jane, a headhunter, from whom I leased my office on Medicine Avenue. Once Jane organized a nice dinner and invited many of her friends, that's when I met Beatrice. By the way, Michael Talbot wrote a book, Holographic Universe, quite a remarkable book, in which he spoke about Beatrice Rich and many other remarkable people and experiments which were done. Uh, but just remember, Michael Talbot, Holographic Universe, definitely a book to read. So Beatrice advised countless clients on their lives. She was just an extraordinary psychic. Uh, one of the unique gifts that she had, I remember, was that when she met somebody, just above the person, she had an image of a screen the size of a large TV screen. 
and saw images of a person's life, including what a person did minutes before they met. I remember when she spoke or answered my questions when I asked. Um, she, she told me some details I cannot remember now, but I was shocked how accurate it was about my life. And then I went to the bathroom <laughs> and I remember walking out and say, so Beatrice, can you tell me, did I wash my hands or not? Then I have uh, actually a friend, Lorraine Nightheart. We became friends um, later, but originally she came to see me in my office. I don't remember why. And of course, I wouldn't, if I remembered, I would still not tell you uh, because it's confidential. But I have a feeling I, I told you or mentioned Lorraine's name in one of my talks with you. Uh, that was also in early 90s. We met, uh, uh, and the whole session, I remember, she was telling me very interesting thing. But she did not tell me what she came for. Uh, she was teaching me about astral projection, um, about angels, about our higher self. And after the third session of her educating me and at the end diligently writing me a check, I finally asked her, why are you coming here telling me all these stories, obviously giving me some kind of education and paying me? What are you here for? And she said, remember, I'm a psychic. And I know you can help me with something. But first, I need you to let go of all the psychology nonsense and get a broader understanding of life. Once I educate you, you will help me. Uh, I was still doubting about her. I, I thought she was either a super psychic or an undiagnosed schizophrenic. We're good friends. I know she will not get offended now because she knows I love her. At that time, I was studying with Dr. Gerald Epstein. It's the one who introduced me to my teacher, Colette. And one day, Jerry told me, I think it's time for you to read about hermeticism. It's an ancient philosophy originated in Egypt. He said, uh, buy a book called Kibalion, Introduction to Hermeticism. And I diligently wrote it down. And right after my meeting with Jerry, I went to my office, and Lorraine my, was my first client. She walked in, put a little wrapped package on my desk, and said, here it is for you. I asked, what is it? And she said, I was in a Jungian bookstore, and they said, and she wrote her eyes. Buy this book for Peter Resnick. And I asked, who will pay for it? And she said, uh, and they said, you. Uh, and she, like, like, kind of, almost like, un un unhappy that they told her what to do. And I said, thank you. I didn't even open uh, the package. And then we started our session. After she left, I opened the gift. It was a book, Kibalion 
introduction to Hermeticism. Probably that did it, because when she came to see me the next week, she looked at me and said, okay, here's how you can help me. And I did. But somehow she sensed that I was ready. I was trusting enough in all this phenomenon. So, so she was one of the people who opened the doors to me, to this, uh, for me, to, for, to, to this reality of um, spirits and angels. Though, as you know, I was already um, familiar with psychic abilities. My nephew, Vladimir, that you know of, um, is a psychic. But, but talking about angels was a little too much for me. Not yet. <laughs> then I remember also Raquel, the Yemenite, another remarkable person. Raquel lived on the Upper West Side in Manhattan. She was really an incredible person. She was totally uneducated. She was an Israeli, but originally from Yemen. She did not know how to read or write in any language. She lived half of her adult life in New York, but spoke no English. There was a woman walking, working for her as an interpreter. The woman had a lot of problems with her son. And a friend of this woman suggested that she, that she would talk to me, and maybe I could be helpful to her son. So the woman asked her help just before she started interpreting for one of Raquel's clients, asked Raquel, I'm thinking of bringing my son to see this psychologist. Do you think this psychologist is good for my son? She didn't mention my name. Uh, Raquel said, oh, yes, he is good. And he was here with me 10 years ago. And the woman said, no, no, it's impossible. He's an American psychologist. They don't believe in psychics. Raquel said, you ask him. And of course, when I was asked, how could I not remember? Ten years before meeting this interpreter, my wife and I decided to move out of New York City to start a family, to have a baby. And I, I, both of us felt like we wanted our child or children to learn how to walk on the grass, not on the asphalt in New York City. So I would keep my Manhattan practice, that was then on Madison Avenue, 48th Street, and commute to the city five days a week. Uh, so, but, but I was kind of questioning, is, was, was it the right choice? Uh, would I manage it because it was still a ride for like an hour every day, and an hour there and an hour back? So, but it was a nice house, uh, bordering with 25,000 acres of state land. I was not so sure. So, when a friend suggested, listen, I know this woman, Raquel, Upper West Side, uh, go and see her and ask what she thinks. And I said, well, okay, you know, I will go for a visit. So, when I walked in, the first thing she said, and she used a different, a male interpreter, I remember. She said, ah, you like a lot of land. You will love to live there. So our appointment was very short. She approved of, <laughs> or 
felt that it was a good thing for me uh, to be there. And so that's it. Uh, I think Hale died seven or eight years ago. Another psychic. I, well, psychic now. Of course, another psychic I told you about. Uh, and that's my nephew, Vlad. And you know him, uh, invited him to this show, I think, six times. Uh, you know all about his work. I, wow, I got carried away. But I started with the thought, because I read to you the poem about how people never forget about how you made them feel. Uh, and then all these remarkable people came to my mind. Uh, and I wanted to say, after I met this kind of people, or after you meet, you feel in awe about them, uh, which is a nice experience. But overall, I would say any male psychic I met had a little bit of an inflated ego. And any female psychic I met were modest and humble. But you definitely are in awe about all of them. I have to tell you something else. If you were to meet my other nephew, like, uh, and that's I also, uh, the physician in Bar Harbor, Maine, I also invited him here one time to speak about his book, Secrets um, of Medical Decision-Making. When people meet Oleg, he gives them such full, undivided attention and respect that people feel in awe, not about him, but about themselves. At least it's my impression. And I think my sister Ina, who is his aunt, also thinks Right. Oh, God, no. Another psychic came to my mind. I, 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 I realize how many psychics I met. But okay, I will keep <laughs> because what if I remember more and more? <laughs> yeah, I met a number of them. Yeah. Any, um, anyway, let's let's move on. Let's move. Let's move on to our subject. We are going through uh, Genesis. And we already went through four full hours talking about uh, the first two chapters. It's amazing. I think I told you that um, every week, usually, uh, when I go to the synagogue, we cover one portion of, of the five books of Moses and one portion, and, and the whole five books are divided in 52 portions, so a portion a week. Uh, but the first portion ends, it begins, from the, for example, from Genesis 1.11, and it ends with chapter 6. But we so far, in four hours, covered only barely. We didn't finish the second chapter. Why do we go so slowly? Because 
I am trying to give you a full, full, uh, full take that I have on the chapters. When I study with my my friends, uh, most of the things that I tell you, they know, because every year we go through the same thing, and more and more things are discovered. We read about, uh, we read different books, different commentaries on the same subjects. So, but I assume, and maybe I'm wrong, some of you, but some of you may know a lot, but I assume that many of you did not go in depth to every chapter. That's why it takes so much time. So, and again, I would really welcome your feedback. Should I go? Should I go faster? Um, anyway, we ended talking about um, second chapter, verse 18. And now we go to verse 19. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird in the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Notice, on the physical plane, God formed animals the same way God formed Adam from the ground. But he does not breathe life into them. So animals do not have the breath or the spirit, what we call a ruach, of God. So they do not possess the qualities of God, such as freedom to choose and creativity. I continue. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Now, what my thoughts are about giving someone a name, put, them, put the giver in a dominant position. Animals were to know that Adam was in charge. That is, animals were programmed just like, you know, from birth. How does a, a bird know that she needs, it needs to flap wings? How does a lion know that uh, he needs to eat meat, not grass? They're programmed or they, they're born with it with natural instincts. Animals were programmed that they did not possess freedom of choice. They were programmed not to attack humans. In fact, a human, Adam gave them the name. He was in charge. So you will say, why then wild animals do attack humans? Because the animals are programmed or had the impulse to attack other animals. Other animals have fear, anger, uh, this um, war impulse, animosity. Uh, and human beings are different by design. If you think about uh, Biblic characters, uh, for example, Prophet Daniel in Lion's Den. When he was placed in the den, the lion didn't eat him. Why? 
because Daniel did not have any animosity, did not have any fear either. Daniel was totally connected with God and knew that whatever happens will happen. And so the animal recognized it was a human being. In fact, say, it, it is said that St. Francis of Assisi could walk through the forest and any wild animals would come to him and not be afraid of him and not attack him. In fact, what comes to my mind now is a book, I don't remember what book uh, Wayne Dyer wrote. You probably know Wayne Dyer, the name. Uh, but he tells a story that he, his wife, and all his children went for a picnic. And they were at the edge of a forest. And his youngest daughter, that he said was such a loving, incredible creature, that she loved every living being, every tree, never had any anger toward anyone, was so sweet with all her siblings and with anyone she met. And so this youngest daughter walked toward the forest, got very close to where all the, the trees were starting. And, and Wayne and, and the rest were close to the car, were opening whatever packages to have um, a meal because they just arrived. And suddenly, the, his wife touched his shoulder in fear and pointed toward the wall. And the fox walked out from the, from the forest. And the fox is a wild animal. It can attack. And they all froze. And the fox just walked around the girl, rubbed just like a cat would, rubbed its fur against the girl's uh, leg, and walked back to the, into the forest. And that's because I think that this girl, indeed, was a hum human being as we were, we were designed to be. No fear, no anger, love of all. Let's continue. Second chapter, verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast in the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper to fit him, fit for him. By the way, uh, we already spoke about it. The right translation, the literal translation, is not fit for him, but who is his equal. So the, the exact translation is, but for Adam there was not found a helper who is his equal. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Again, the Hebrew word tzela, as it's often translated, a rib, but also tzela means the side. So possibly God took the side from Adam. We may ask, to form someone equal to Adam, 
why wouldn't God to do the same thing from dust from the ground and breathe into that someone the breath of life? That's what he did for Adam. Ah, here we must think. Then there would be two separate beings. And the purpose of taking the companion for Adam, from Adam is so that they would always feel that something is missing till they find each other. That's why I believe it is written in Talmud. Two weeks before a child is born, is conceived in the world of spirit, it is announced. Such and such person will have this partner or soulmate. Uh, there is actually a story. Uh, let me see if I can remember it well. I don't know where it is written for sure, but it's a historical event. In times of a Roman occupation of the Holy Land, some Romans were socializing with prominent Hebrews. They did respect educated people. So the story goes, the Roman general or governor asked the rabbi, so you say you got created in your, in your book, in your scroll, you say that God created the world in six days. And what he has, if he finished it in six days, what has he been doing since then? What has he been doing since then? And the rabbi answered, matching life partners, finding people the right soulmate. It is also, I, I don't, again, I don't remember, I think it's written in Talmud, but I'm not sure. It's written to, for God, to find the right partner is as a miracle, as a challenge, as a, to part the sea, the Red Sea, which was parted. Okay? We go further. Verse 22. And the side, or the rib, that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is the last is a, a bone of my bone, a flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because he has, she has been taken from the man. In Hebrew, it is Isha, the name for Isha because she was taken from Ish. And I think we already spoke about it. If there is God in the relationship, she is Isha with the letter He, uh, which stands for God. And if there is no God, then it's spelled without a, uh, He, uh, it's spelled Ash, which means fire. So, uh, if, if you remember the meaning of you getting together, if you always remember that you're not by a chance brought together, then there is a wife and a man, a uh, wife and a husband. But if you forget about the meaning, the purpose of your being together, then there is fire, there is fighting. 
The next verse is very powerful. Verse 24, second chapter. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother's home and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man shall leave his father's and his mother's home and hold fast, or there is another word, and cleave to his wife, and they become one flesh. A shocking verse, if you think about it. Here we just learned about the Big Bang, the birth of the universe, the emergence of light, stars, planets, the birth of different species, the formation of humans, and suddenly, here we get some psychotherapy. The man needs to leave his parents' home in order to achieve oneness with his mate. What parents? There were no parents yet, only two humans on the whole planet. And both were born not in a way human beings are born. But God runs ahead of himself to say, as humans, we will be multiplied. And the first thing we need to remember, the first instruction, most important instruction for them to follow is that they want to achieve oneness with their soulmate. He, he is to leave his father's and mother's home, not she. Robert Bly, you know, American poet, I already um, quoted him a couple of times. I wrote this book, I wrote, read it many years ago, called The Iron John. It's a fairy tale. And there the story goes that the Iron John, the young prince, must leave his home in order to become a man, in order to become independent, in order to achieve his purpose in life. Again, a man has to leave his it's interesting, not a woman needs to leave her parents' home, but a man. Uh, my thinking about it is, is this. You know, if a man stays in his home and brings his wife, no mother will be satisfied with any uh, daughter-in-law no daughter-in-law in mother's eyes will take as good care of her son as the mother did till the moment this young woman came into their lives. So that's kind of psychological thing. And, and I've seen, I heard a number of women, grown women, respect this statement and indeed say, uh, I heard too say, I, I, uh, I don't think that I will be a bad mother-in-law, but I believe in the wisdom of the Torah, and so I want them to live separately. Verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So Adam and Eve were innocent, like children, like animals. And that's where the second chapter ends. Any calls? No calls. Okay, uh, um, Okay. we'll continue. Again, if you want to call, if you want to send a message, please feel free. We start the third chapter. 
uh, exciting stuff is coming up. <laughs> now, this uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was shrewdest than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made, had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Whoa, these are three verses. But the serpent, verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here we must pause, talk about what Eve, or later humanity, was faced with. Eve was, let me have a sip of my, yes, ginger tea. So, Eve was offered something which was exactly the opposite to what the one who created her instructed not to do. Adam followed her. Human beings have been facing the same dilemma ever since. A choice between the power of love and love of power. How come? The creator out of power of love by the, the root of the Hebrew word for love, Ahava, is chav, meaning to give. So in love, God gives life even more, freedom to choose to Adam and Eve. Instead of responding with gratitude, Adam and later Eve and later Adam choose to follow the serpent. And the serpent's alluring words, and you be like God, knowing good and evil. That is, you will be as powerful as God. You will be as powerful as God. Eve was thrown into doubt. Do I do this? Why do not do that? First, Adam and Eve were living in a, in a world of continuous flow of revelation. They were guided by one voice. That is, God speaks, God created them, everything is nice and pleasant, uh, no conflict, and the serpent introduces doubt. By the way, the word doubt comes from French do, meaning two. Have you ever had this experience being of two minds? So often we find ourselves being of two minds. If I do this, so that and that will happen. If I do that, this and this will happen. What do I do? We are confronted with choices on a daily basis, small choices, 
that make us pause for a minute or two and make choices that sometimes throw us, us off balance and paralyze us in decision. Because we are all the children of fear. We unlearned the skill of listening to one voice. It is the voice of intuition. It is the God inside of us. We are blessed by this voice. I wrote actually about it in a short article called Intuition. You can find it on my website. You know my website, right? drpeterresnik.com. Under articles, you will find the article Intuition. Back to Genesis, uh, Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one to make one wise, she took of it and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sued, I don't know how to say it, uh, sued or sowed, I, I see the spelling, but I cannot read, uh, S-E-W-E-D, uh, made for themselves uh, uh, leaves as, as a lion clothes, loin clothes. I don't know these words. <laughs> well, that's all. Think about it. Yeah, loin clothes. So, think about what we just read, or what I poorly read for you. They just realized they were naked. That was the immediate response to circumstances. Did they realize more than that? To what were their eyes open? To good and evil. First, when they just listened to God, the first voice, they were exposed only to good, to whatever God told them, the direct revelation. From this point on, they were in a world of experimentation, knowing good and evil. If to have a choice, to do the right or the wrong thing, to, to do, be kind or to be unkind, to be dead or alive. Our goal, of course, as the children of Eve, is to relearn how to listen to the first voice. So do read the article, I suggest. But that's how we, as humanity, lost that direct connection, uh, consciously being aware of that connection. But, as I, you will read in the article, there are ways to reconnect it. It, it. Some people call it, you know, first voice, some people call it uh, connecting with the higher self, uh, listening to your gut feeling. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And, and all other voices are just seducing you into doubt. Let's continue. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the uh, and moving around 
in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Nine. But the Lord called the man. Why two men, you may ask? Because it was the man to whom he said uh, not to eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. The Lord called the man, where are you? The Hebrew word is ayaka. Tell me what kind of question is that? What do you mean, where are you? Doesn't God know exactly where everyone is? God doesn't, isn't God aware of completely of everything in God's universe? Of course, of course. There is actually an, in a, a beautiful story from the life of Schneer Zalman of Liyad, a big rabbi, the founder of, um, of the Chabad branch of Judaism. Then he was born in Liadi, uh, in Grand Duchy of Lithuania, and later it became part of Russia. We're talking about 18th century. The rabbi was arrested by the authorities uh, on some trumped-up charges. We used to do it regularly with many leaders uh, of religious minorities, just to keep them in check. They kept the rabbi for a couple of months till the big inspector from Moscow met with him. And the man, the inspector, happened to be an intelligent and educated man. And he looked at the case, and then he asked the rabbi, listen, in the Old Testament, it is written, and God called to the man, where are you? How do you people explain it? Doesn't God know everything? Couldn't God see where Adam and Eve were hiding? And the rabbi answered, of course. God knew where they were hiding. The question was, Ayaka, where are you? Where are you in relationship with me? And he continued, each of us is asked by God every single day, Ayaka, where are you in your relationship with what I ask of you? Where are you in the relationship with truth? The next day, the rabbi was released. Jews of this movement celebrate the date of rabbi's release till this day. Where are you? And now verse 10, and he said, I heard sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? You have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat. The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, gave me uh, the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Notice, not only Adam takes no responsibility for his action, but blames it on the woman, but he also blames God, saying, you, you are the one who gave her to me. It's your fault. It's called defense through offense technique. Do you think it works with God? Verse 13, then the God, 
the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, I and I ate. <laughs> she takes no responsibility either. You know, uh, uh, I mentioned to you as one of the sources that I look into uh, uh, writings of the rabbi psychiatrist Abraham Tversky. And he wrote in one of his books, a man needs four things, air, water, food, and someone to blame. So that's what our <laughs> mother, father, uh, progenitors did. The first thing they did, once confronted with the truth, with the question, they blame. So the next verse, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts in the field. On your belly you, will shall, you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. They shall strike you on your head, and you will strike them on their heel. Here, I would like to talk a bit about the serpent, his intelligence, and his motives. We are told that he was the smartest of all beasts in the field. So he was still an animal. So if he did not have freedom to choose, why was he punished? Or he was also given freedom to choose. I did not read any discussion on this subject. I'm not sure. Maybe uh, uh, there is some stuff written about it. I just didn't come across. I don't have an answer. If you want to write to me about it, please go ahead. But I wanted to share with you uh, that and something else about this verse came to me this Sunday, by the way. I don't have time to, to share with you. Well, this last Sunday, I thought serpent's actions took away Adam and Eve's immortality. You understand that uh, even though God says you will surely die, it did not mean that they will die at that moment that they will become mortal. So serpent made them go lose their immortality. So serpent, the serpent must somehow be connected with death. And from Dr. Gerald Epstein and Colette, I learned gematria, that is numerology. I don't know if all of you are aware of it, but every letter in Hebrew alphabet corresponds with a number, like Aleph, the first is one, Bet, two, Gimel, three, and so on. Some of you may have seen Jewish people wearing this little ornament, and it's like a, it looks like a letter. It's actually two letters, Hai and Yud, which means life. So uh, Yud is eight, a uh, ten, and a hat uh, is um, eight, which makes it eighteen. So that's number 18. So what I calculated 
was that uh, if you take the word death, which is gova, gimel, vav, and ayan, it comes to number 16. And I learned from uh, Jerry and Colette that the number for life is 18, and the number for death is 16. That's how they got the number 16, from the word death. And so what I thought about was serpent brought death to humanity. What would be his numerology? That's this Sunday. And guess what? The, the Hebrew word for a serpent is nachash, which consists of three letters, nun, chet, and shin. Together, they are num it comes to 358. That is, noon is uh, 50, hat 8, and shin 300. If you add 358, 3 plus 5 plus 8 comes to 16. Isn't it interesting? So, so the serpent brings death into the world. That is, takes away the immortality. We'll talk about more about the serpent and what what the serpent means to us in our everyday life, the tempter, the deceiver, and we elaborate on it, um, God willing, next week, unless you ask some questions that I have to answer uh, right away, uh, because it's a huge subject. Uh, you know that I wrote a little book called Taming the Debater Within. Uh, Nachash, the serpent, comes in different forms, tempting us in different ways, seducing us, taking us away from the only truth that exists, and that is the present moment. So it's hard for us to live in the present, because that serpent, that uh, snake of doubt, always takes us either into the past, which is dead, non-existent, over or into the future, which is non-existence as well. So, and we'll talk about it next time, uh, how we can stay in the present and avoid the temptations of the serpent. Uh, I want to thank you now for your attention, for being with me all this time. Uh, I hope to have your attention uh, next week on Tuesday at 2 o'clock. Please write to me. Uh, I'm really looking forward to getting your feedback always. Uh, be happy. Peace to all who want to live in peace.
Are you ready for the Great Reset? Would you like a microchip implant? Or do you want to be 